Hi, this is Tim Burton. Hello, I'm Henry Selleck, director of Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. I'm Danny Elfman, and I wrote the songs and the music for Nightmare Before Christmas. Well, the origin of Nightmare started when I first started working at Disney around 1980. And uh, after working on Fox and the Hound and then doing design work for Black Cauldron, I got the opportunity to just sort of draw whatever I wanted to for a couple of years. And during that time, Vincent came about and uh, Frank and Weenie came about and uh, also Nightmare Before Christmas. And that really had to do with, you know, growing up loving things like the Rankin and Bass, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which I'd seen every year since I was a child, and the Dr. Seuss, The Grinch That Stole Christmas. Those two holiday specials had, you know, major impact on me. I look forward to them every year, I think, as, as most people did. Growing up in Burbank, you know, you you, you really latch onto the seasons because uh, you don't really get them in Southern California. You know, the really the only way you know it's a new season is if you walk into Save On or Thrifty and walk down the aisle and see, you know, Halloween decorations or Christmas decorations, and that's where you got your sense of holiday or season, because the, the weather certainly didn't do it for you. Well, the idea of the the, the world's colliding and Halloween becoming Christmas and Christmas becoming Halloween was always something that intrigued me, partially because I remember, you know, every Christmas I'd stick Halloween decorations on my Christmas tree. And that's that became just a very fun kind of visual joke to me. So um, it was really a lot of fun to kind of actually go much further with that. And uh, like I said, because it's the two my two favorite holidays, the idea of combining both with each other was just part of the energy and the fun of the whole piece for me. And so Nightmare was the idea to try to create something in that vein. Danny Elfman was a real important part of it because, uh, in fact, I even started talking to him about it before we really started writing it because I always thought of it as kind of a... a operatic musical kind of thing. Well, Nightmare Before Christmas is still one of my favorite collaborations with Tim, if not my favorite. And uh, it all started when uh, Tim came to me with this uh, idea uh, of from this poem that he'd written about uh, Jack Skellington, and we talked about doing it. And we went through kind of a, a period of time where neither of us were sure quite how to begin. Um, Neither of us had done a musical uh, with songs, and so what? who does what first was really like a question. And uh, in the beginning, there was kind of a, some amount of script, but the script wasn't really coming together, and then Henry was hired, and I hadn't even met him. He was working up in San Francisco at the beginning to get stuff together. And um, eventually it came down to, well, we got to start doing something, so um, let's start telling the story with songs. Let's start some of the songs while everything else is coming together, because at least that will give them something to work with. Danny was almost like a writer on it in the sense that, you know, I think I talked to him about it in terms of like, you know, kind of a outline and beat sheet. And then he started thinking of songs. I mean, literally, uh, it sounds like crazy, but you know, he'd be talking, well, 
Okay, it just opens all the characters in Halloween Land there, and they're all singing, and um, they're singing about Jack being the king, and and you know Tim is very animated when he's telling the story. It's like he's very excited and he's animated, and I'm hearing dun 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 dun, and dun, dun, I'm just starting to get this thing in my head. This is Halloween. This is Halloween. So that's already starting to kind of roll in my head. So before he's left the door. And there were a couple of times where, you know, I couldn't uh, push him out fast enough because I didn't want to lose it. Because I'm already hearing, this is Halloween, this is Halloween. You know, I'm hearing it in my head. And it's like, I got to get this quick. You know, it's like, um, I am susceptible to hearing something else which will erase my musical thoughts. Like, you know, if I heard some uh, commercial in the TV in the background um, or a little bit of something coming from anywhere, you know, it's like it's liable to destroy <laughs> and um, uh, so you know I'd be very eager to quickly get my thoughts uh, written down and um, actually to more than just write them down but to actually record snippets with vocals so I would be running into the other room and I'd be quickly going you know little group vocals I would lay down uh, five six eight nine twelve parts you know pumpkin scream in the dead of night and um, you know, and lay down these kind of rough things. And within a couple of days, I'd have a fully fleshed uh, song. In terms of the music and the story, um, we chose to not make it like a musical where it's like, you know, people talk a lot and then they burst into song and then it sort of stops the story. Uh, we wanted it to be kind of a bit more like kind of like a three penny opera or kind of an operetta where, you know, there's some dialogue, that goes into the music and the song and that hopefully kind of keeps the story moving. I mean, because there's a fair amount of songs. In, in, in the other type of musical, you maybe have a few songs, but again, it sort of just stops while people burst into song. And also because it's animation, it just it feels musical to me. Tim would talk about emotionally what Jack's going through and I'm kind of feeling what he's talking about. I'm going, yes, I understand. And um, and he also had lyrics uh, that he'd written for Jack's Lament. I think even the opening, there are few who deny it. What I do, I am the best. For my talents are renowned far and wide. You know, that just started right with lines that he had and I just took off from there. Um, and so it really kind of triggered with uh, with uh, lines that he was feeding me, and I caught right onto it and just elaborated and kept it going from there. If the credits were completely accurate, it should have said additional lyrics by Tim Burton because he has some really good lines in there, and especially in the early songs. And a little at a time, about every three or four days, we'd get together and he'd just tell me, he said, this is Jack and, and uh, here's what's happening and he's, walking out into the forest and he's feeling really sad and he's gonna sing a song about how sad he feels because he just doesn't really know who he is and he'd start talking about it and as he'd be talking about it I'd start hearing a song and um, I'd say okay okay that's good that's good gotta go 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 and I'd chew him out and I'd go write the song and I'd call him three days later and say okay I got a song and I'd, he'd come over and he'd listen to it and he goes oh yeah yeah great okay I say well now tell me the next part of the story. <laughs> and we did this through, I guess, 10 songs, you know. And so um, we pieced together all the songs in this kind of strange method of not even thinking ahead, just that's one part of the story at a time. And uh, at the end of which we had like this whole complete sense of uh, the story in song. And then we, um, 
uh, had that, I did demos of it, and those demos went to Henry, and so Henry had something to start with. Tim had uh, certain rules. He said there's no magic in Halloween Town. And uh, I had to trick him a few times because I thought he'd like um, the fact that this hill unwinds for Jack to step off it. And um, it just seemed like it was begging, a moment that was begging to happen. Just the design, he needed a great exit. So as long as I said, well, it's a mechanical hill, then, then it was okay. Tim had conceived of, of Nightmare when he was at Disney, but his style and who he was, the stories he wanted to tell, just didn't jibe with the Disney of that era. Yeah, well, my Disney eyes, they looked a little, I don't know. I could never really draw Disney eyes. I think that's why I got, uh, that's why they kicked me out of the animation department, basically, I think, because, uh, you know, I, I couldn't really draw in that, in that style very well. So uh, that, you know, it was a negative to that, but it was turned into a, a positive in terms of being able to, to let me uh, do a bit more of my own style. Ultimately, Tim had to leave Disney to find uh, great success to come back to do Nightmare. The project took about 20 years to get made. This was after the fact that I'd done a few movies. Uh, that's when we got the okay to make Nightmare. I mean, I a few movies that were under my belt, and a couple of them were successful, so that always, you know, changes people's minds a bit in terms of, uh, now it seems like a good idea. When I was first kind of pitching it around, you know, animation was not really that a successful medium. I mean, it was around the time of Fox and the Hound or Black Cauldron, and animation really wasn't, you know, you, you wouldn't call it the golden age of animation. Uh, so, you know, once things kind of got back into their groove of trying new things and, and doing things like, I guess, Little Mermaid and becoming, sort of re-energizing the animation form, uh, you know, all those things made it more possible to do. I met Tim, uh, might have been 1979. I was already working at Disney. I had um, I'd gone to school with some real luminaries, John Lasseter, Brad Bird. John Musker and like 15 other people who've had uh, some great success at, at CalArts. And Tim was a couple of years behind my class. And I, I met him at the uh, Burbank Adult Education Center, which happened to have a life drawing class. And so he was, I think he was commuting from home to go to CalArts. And uh, there's young Tim Burton wearing a bowling shirt, clean cut, <laughs> no, no idea of what was to come. When I first started pitching it around, I went to, to uh, television stations, I went to publishers, but the one thing that always stuck with me uh, was the stop motion. And I think, again, that had to do with Rankin and Bass and Ray Harryhausen's work, which was very, very strong to me growing up. You know, he, something about the three-dimensional form that just made the characters feel more real. So, you know, I remember going to, to networks and they go, well, what about a animated half-hour special, but, you know, do it cell animation. And I just always resisted doing it in any other form. But it wasn't a form that was popular at the time. And uh, I think it really took 20 years because, you know, all that time later, Henry Selleck was working with a great group of people up in the San Francisco area. And, and so there was this amazing group of, of people that love stop motion, that were into it, that, that that had a real passion for it. It's just that time was a very special time with a very special group of people. So it had been a number of years, and then he used Rick Heinrichs as an intermediary. Tim was too busy at a certain point, and I would see him 
pretty rarely after Batman. But using Rick as an intermediary, you know, like a secret mission, he flew up to the uh, San Francisco area where I was uh, living and working and wouldn't tell me anything on the phone and then just sat me down face to face and said, Tim wants to make this uh, his uh, Nightmare Before Christmas film with Disney and maybe it's time for Henry Selleck to direct a feature. Yeah, I knew how talented he was and, you know, he just seemed really right to do it. I mean, I felt really comfortable with Henry because partially because I knew him and, and we were friends and I just felt like I didn't need or didn't want to take co-directing on it just because I just basically I felt comfortable with the material and so I just felt really you know extremely in good hands uh, with Henry doing it I think I was uh, I was pretty giddy I mean I really loved Tim's original concept and artwork and uh, kind of you know a, a too good to be true moment I just sort of established was getting my, myself established uh with my own work, and there was a momentary pang because I was supposed to do a series on uh, on MTV called Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions, but I just... This song in sequence, what's this? That was the first song we received from Danny Elfman, and so it became the first sequence we planned, storyboarded, built puppets and sets for, and made. And it was uh, it was kind of a wild time because we didn't really know where where our target was. What are we going for? What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? But we um, kind of went, well, Christmas Town has to be um, softer, sweeter. But there's there's still, uh, in, in, in What's This, there's, there's still a few shots people grimace at who worked on the film because it was, uh, we were greenhorns making it. I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of it. I think it, I think it works despite it being the first one, the test run for every other sequence. Jack's sucked down into this vortex, and he comes out and he's seeing everything new. And we would just make lists of all the new things. A snowflake. He sees um, a toy. He sees uh, a light. He sees a child being read a story in bed. Everything he sees is something completely new, and every, all of his reactions should be, what is this thing? Oh my God, I've never seen anything like this. And uh, it should be completely from an, the uh, viewpoint of an innocent, a very enthusiastic innocent who's seeing everything for the first time. I tried to be a little bit inspired by uh, Gilbert and Sullivan here. I wanted to write a song that would almost be a tongue twister um, in the same way that uh, in... Uh, I am the very model of a modern major general. Um, that song is a really difficult song to sing, and I, I wanted to write a song for Jack that would be his version of a, <laughs> of a modern major general um, that would really take some uh, tongue-twisting in order to get the words out. Starting up Nightmare, actually going in, into production, looking back on the whole experience, that's probably the craziest part of it, that we began a film when we didn't actually have a script, we only had a few songs from Danny. Um, Tim was busy making another movie. He was going to be on Batman Returns and uh, then go on to Ed Wood Jr. So it wasn't possible to have a lot of conferences about how does this all add up? What, what are, <laughs> how is this actually going to work as a film? 
I don't know if it was uh, just inexperience, but I was, I was, I never doubted that we'd be able to figure everything out. I just wasn't worried. I, um, I think I believed in uh, in the project so much that I assumed things would fall into place, and 90% of them did. Um, for example, in the previous uh, several years, you know, I went from doing stuff all by myself, and then I started growing a little crew to do a lot of work. I did a lot of uh, station IDs for. MTV, the late 80s. And uh, and then I also, with that group, did a bunch of the Pillsbury Doughboy commercials when that was still done as stop motion. So I had this sort of core team, a lighting expert, Pete Kuzacek. We'd all grown together. And some of the top animators, Eric Layton, Mike Belzer, Anthony Scott, uh, Tim Hiddle, Trey Thomas, Owen Clotty, and more. We, so we'd already developed a, a great working relationship and, um, you know, a production manager that we'd worked with a little bit was brought in. And we just deputized everyone. Everyone sort of stepped up. Well, there's such an amazing energy with stop motion. It's different than any other form. I mean, all forms are incredibly interesting and valid in their own right. But there's something amazing about seeing a puppet. It's something kind of Pinocchio-like about having something dimensional that that comes to life. It, it, it kind of draws you a bit more like you're back into doing live action, although slow motion live action, because it takes a lot longer. But, you know, building sets, you kind of see the set, you see the character, the lighting. There's just something that's really magical about that. And, and just if you've ever had the opportunity to feel or touch one of these puppets, it's a very, you know, sensual, textural, uh, amazing uh, feel. And you just see the artistry, you can feel the artistry. The people that make the puppets are, are amazing. If you, you know, peel away the skin of them, they're, they're quite uh, amazing uh, mechanisms. In stop-motion animation, um, which can be done with, um, you know, puppets that have, you know, joints or wire, it could be done with aluminum foil that you re-sculpt every frame or, or clay. Um, there's, there's, there are many challenges, but the primary one, and also what ultimately makes it unique and special, is that it's an actual performance, unlike every other type of animation where you, you can figure out your extremes and then have assistants do in-betweens or have the computer create in-betweens. Um, you can rehearse in stop motion. You can do little sketches to guide where you're going to go. You'll know when uh, the mouths have to change. The voices are, re are recorded before you actually animate. But in the end, it's an animator and their puppet, and they have to breathe an actual performance through that puppet one frame at a time. Because Jack Skellington was the lead character and there was so much of him, I became the de facto Jack Skellington actor. You know, when people, they don't, what do you want? And I, and I, you know, I could do some sketches. I'd try to capture what was in Tim's, um, Tim's work. But at a certain point, I got comfortable. And so some of the sequences, I, I would act out pretty completely. Um, the final sequence of, of Jack coming up to Sally on the hill at the end, uh, I kind of acted it out for Tim Hiddle, who did the hard work of animating uh, when, when Jack is the pumpkin king and he's dancing around on fire on the on the horse um paul barry one of the best stop motion guys who ever lived he made me act act it all out for him and you do that a few times and then and then people get in tune so you have to you can't just make it move you can't just uh 
have it wiggle around and 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 it's and it's moving so it's alive. The difference between just making something move and actually bringing a character to life is, is huge, and that's that's the uh, stop motion animator's greatest challenge. Jack Skellington, he's one of cinema's great characters. I like his contradictions. I like his ability to delude himself, and all in this very innocent way about doing something great, doing something better, getting invigorated um, with a concept of taking over somebody else's holiday and not not even imagining the harm he might cause. When we were first thinking about Jack as a character in terms of movement, um, Obviously, we went by the way he looked, and you know, he's he's like kind of a stick figure, kind of a, a stick insect or or a spider or something. And so, you know, the look of the character obviously dictates a little bit of how they move. And you know, we'd also talked about people like Fred Astaire or Vincent Price or you know other people that had sort of an elegance of movement. So the idea of kind of this stick insect or spider. Fred Astaire, you know, all those kind of inspirations kind of go into, but at the end of it all, it's 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 the way the character looks that I think dictated the type of movement, which added to what his character was. He was tough, tough to build, tough to bring to life. He was such an extreme, uh, extremely stylized character, so thin and tall. I had to put stripes on him because he was all black and thin, and you couldn't see him. He's. He's in Halloween Town. It was one of those things I, I, I told Tim, I said, you know, we just can't, can't stay black. So uh, I put pinstripes and we tested it and, and it worked. So he had to evolve. His, his legs are a little thicker than Tim's drawings. But I love Tim's idea for, for his head. It's a ping pong ball, really, with a little bit of shape. It's not anything like a, a real human skull, and yet, uh, he's so expressive, and um, a lot of the faces that uh, Jorn Klubin, one of one of our storyboard artists, he also figured out and drew a lot of his expressions that were then sculpted. It was really funny to me to think that we're here. We're doing a. I was thinking, is this the first real Disney feature with the main character doesn't have any eyeballs? You know, it's like that's that that seems like it's treading on new territory. I think at one point they asked me to put eyeballs in it, but we decided that you know that it was much more of an interesting challenge. And I think you know everybody did an amazing job of giving this character um, you know a heart and soul with no eyes. Certainly Tim Burton, who dreamed up Jack Skellington and, and did the drawings, um, you know, is the, is the father of Jack. But I think Tim and Danny and myself all feel a lot of ourselves in that character. Danny, um, you know, he wrote the songs, he sang, he did all of uh, Jack Skellington's singing. So he had to help, you know, he contributed a huge amount. and, and uh, He's the lead guy. The music was so important that it just felt right that, you know, Danny should do the voice, he should sing his music. His voice fits the music perfectly, so it didn't seem like there would be anybody else that it would fit so so perfectly with. So, uh, you know, and he certainly knew the music, so that made it you know, easier as well. I was doing the vocals just figuring, this is what the vocal is. And I think it was over the course of that year, um, 
I remember thinking, oh man, this is going to be painful trying to hearing another singer come in and sing these. I'm not the best singer, and I know that there's singers who are a lot better than me, but I become so attached to the songs and the parts, and you know, I was singing them from a place that I really felt personally connected to, because on so many levels I related to Jack and his uh, his plight, because um, here he was the king of Halloween land and um, looking for something else in his life. And um, I was in a similar period with uh, the band Oingo Boingo that I was with because um, I was the king of my own little Halloween land, but I really wanted to do something else. And um, I didn't know what, but suddenly films came along and I was really enjoying doing them and I saw these, all these doors opening. And like Jack, uh, film scoring was for me uh, Jack's visit to uh, Christmastown. And um, I was kind of lost in a similar way to Jack uh, for a while there with Uncle Boingo looking for something else to do. Um, I was no longer really happy just being in a band. I wanted something else. So when I was writing these songs about Jack, it was easy to uh, relate to him. And I almost felt like I was writing, you know, my own woes at that time. It just. Halloween Land was Oingo Boingo, and Christmas Town was the world of musical things that I might be doing, but I didn't know what they were um, outside of being in a band. Danny has this kind of amazing contradiction. I, I'd see him in Oingo Boingo, and, and he was an incredible live performer, uh, very kind of muscular, very theatrical. He'd wear sort of white makeup, and Sarah would be fiery red. And uh, you know, very sort of precise movements. It was quite a show. You know, one of the best I've ever seen. And that's partly Jack Skellington. But then you meet Danny as a composer, and when he's not that guy, he's a little nerdy. He's very, very bright and funny. And 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 then he's more like uh, Barrel, Lockshock and Barrel, who he also voiced. So there's those two extremes of the real Danny Elfman, and I think that's a big part of what he contributed to, to Jack in the songs he wrote and the, and the singing he did. Chris Sarandon was um, um, a fairly well-known actor. He'd done Princess Bride, one of people's all-time favorites. And we, we were looking for um, a voice that had a little bit of um, a little throatiness, a little, little rasp to it that was a good complement to Danny's singing voice. And um, we had to we had to audition a lot of folks, and then when we met Chris, it just felt like this is the other the other half of of the Jack Skellington character that would complement uh, Danny's contribution. The score was uh, much more difficult than it would seem to be, because uh, the movie's not that long, and almost everywhere that there's not song their score. And uh, the hard part about a score in a musical is that it's often coming out of a song, and it has to come out of the song in an elegant way. But more importantly, it's very likely going to lead into another song. And so it has to already start to pre-echo um, little bits of what's about to come. So I'll be scoring along, you know, having worked my way out of a song into the next scene. And now I'm scoring and I'm going, uh-oh. In a minute, this next song is starting. So I have to start giving little musical clues. And uh, 
to try to give um, some very slight melodic clues and hints of to the melody that's about to come before it arrives. And it became, with that, with so many songs, it became like a, a jigsaw puzzle. You know, I, never, I had no idea what I was doing when I scored Pee-wee's Big Adventure, so the idea of doing something I hadn't done before isn't uh, intimidating for me. It's more, that's what makes it fun. You know, there's different orchestras for different size movies. You know, Beetlejuice was a smaller orchestra. Um, and we just thought that the score, did, it didn't want to have a big sound. It didn't want to have like a huge, uh, didn't need it. So um, we decided, you know, keep it in a smaller range and uh, record it in a room. The same room we, we recorded uh, uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure over at Warner Brothers, which is not one of the bigger rooms. You know, if I have a, a big orchestra and I get into other rooms, this intentionally was a room that has a smaller, more intimate feel to it. Jack's Obsession and a What Have I Done were always going to be the sister songs, the companion songs, in the sense that each one starts low and he works himself up to a frenzy. So the fun of those two songs is that each of these songs, he works himself in the in the singing of the song, he's going to work himself up into a complete clarity, or at least what he thinks is clarity, and uh, go from, in Jack's Obsession, just a state of kind of down, kind of, uh, oh, how do you, how would you explain it? The way Tim explained it to me, he's, he's, he's not eating, he's down, he's like, he's just depressed over this thing, he can't figure it out, he really wants to, and until he finds it, it's gonna drive him crazy. Here in an instant, gone in a flash, what does it mean, what does it mean? And he finds it in the song and works himself up to complete frenzy of enthusiasm. These dolls and toys confuse me so, confound it all, I love it though. And, of course, in uh, What Have I Done, he starts with, my life is over. He's starting from a state of real depression. My life is over, I've ruined everything. And in the context of singing that song, convinces himself that, no, I haven't, and it's all great, and I'm going to fix it, and it's fantastic. So both of them have that common element of starting uh, low, and he's going to completely convince himself, which is the thing I love about Jack, is nobody convinces him of anything. He convinces himself in his own storytelling and works himself up into these frenzies of uh, clarity and enthusiasm and uh, get up and go. I love how he rallies himself. Um, I think there's a lot of Danny Elfman in that, in that particular song. He just, by himself, with his own ego and his ability to sort of like just turn things around, uh, pride, whatever it was, I just, I love that, that it, no one else has to tell him. <laughs> he, he, he's his own, he's like his own worst enemy and his own best friend at the same time. Storyboarding in, in all animation is a very critical part of uh, the, the process. Uh, even some live action directors use it, but Storyboarding is its a step beyond writing. You know, you might have a, a screenplay, you write what you want the movie to be, but in animation, you don't really get to shoot a lot of what they call coverage, where you shoot a close-up of everything, medium shot, master shots, and then you have all this footage to cut together and put together in all these different ways at the end of the film to make the best version of the film. We have to do that, that edit process, before we make the movie. So that's what storyboarding is. It serves many purposes, but that's the, its main function is to figure out visually how to tell the story. 
how horrible our Christmas will be. The mayor represents the <laughs> two-faced nature of politics, which I guess isn't that uh, surprising. Uh, it was fun to be able to pick kind of a type and then kind of represent it in a new way. It's, it's sort of a simplistic idea of a two-faced politician, but it worked very well in this, and I think that it gave it some moments of humor. Halloween's finest trick or treaters. Lockshock and Barrel were, you know, ba they're basically the bad kids. And, you know, something, again, that you go with Halloween, there's that feeling you have or had when you were going out at night, this sort of like the bad kid syndrome. You felt like you could kind of go out and, and be a bit naughty, uh, pranks and, and jokes. And, you know, there's something about that kind of feeling of, freedom that you had going out wearing a costume that that was very very strong i remember there was this twilight zone that i liked very much where people had masks on and they they took them off and the, their, their faces were like the mask and i always remember that being very eerie and i think that this for me was a, a much more light-hearted version of that but uh i remember that having a lot of impact on me when i was uh, when i first saw it there's sweeter children in, in Halloween Town, like that little corpse boy who, who rides on his parents' shoulders. But Lock, Shock, and Barrel are the ones with the personalities. Kidnap the Sandy Claws, tie him in a box. It's like all the things that we can do to Sandy Claws. So once again, you know, Tim and I are talking, let's, let's think of all the things that they can do to him. And maybe a few things that maybe perhaps they shouldn't do to him, you know, those got struck. All right, maybe that's a little too far, but they could do a lot of things to him. And, um, in their own imaginations of all their possibilities. And uh, so of those lists of possible things that could be done, quickly and simply became the Sandy Claus song. In the original cut of the movie, they were a little more evil at the end. They shoved Sandy Claus down that tube, down to Oogie Boogie's. They actually had showed up, lowered themselves down in this little cage outside their tree and had popcorn and candy and were gonna watch the mayhem before Jack showed up. When Tim came in to look at the film at the end and sort of pace it and, you know, fresh eyes and get to really play, he pulled that and uh, it, was, it was a good call because they crossed a line there and went from uh, imps to pretty, pretty awful. <laughs> Paul Rubens was one of the voices and, you know, obviously working with him on Pee Wee, he was the ultimate bad kid. He, he actually did a few voices in Catherine O'Hara, who I'd worked with on, on Beetlejuice. She's such a great character actress. You know, she did Sally beautifully. She gave it such a heart and, 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 uh, and soul. And she, you know, was one of the Lock, Shock, and Barrow characters. And this, for me, was such a, um, a personal project that it was nice to work with people that I knew and had worked with before. To do uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel, um, the Sandy Claus song, um, I'd done the demo, but to, to do the animation, they had to have the actually the locked finished voices. So I had to go back in and re-record it with Paul and Catherine. So the three of us went and recut that song with their voices. And then uh, the next month, it would be the, uh, you know, the town meeting. And so the town meeting had all these other voices in it other than Jack. So once again, okay, let's get the team together, go in there and, and do all the different voices. And Glenn Shaddock's doing the mayor's voice. You know, all of the voices had to be in. Uh, so aside from Jack's voice and this gang of vocals that I laid down in the beginning, um, the Henry couldn't finish the animation until every finished vocal was in there because, of course, Glenn Shaddock's was going to sing uh, a line or uh, a little bit different than I would. 
And so they needed that to get the mouth to work properly. So uh, there was a year of kind of going in and out and finishing up all the songs. Tim had a, a great story. He knew this character, Jack Skellington, and the other lead characters. So um, Tim's always been pretty, pretty incredible at narrowing down to very few words and a drawing what it is he's after. Danny was a great interpreter and a farmer of uh, Tim's seedlings. So that the seedlings are given to Danny. He would grow them into complete songs, which became the building blocks of the whole movie. But we never got them all at once. We, we didn't have all the building blocks. We didn't even know exactly where we were going. Uh, there had been an adaptation written by a very talented uh, screenwriter, Michael McDowell, uh, who, who'd done Beetlejuice. But um, Michael was pretty sick, pretty ill. He had bad health. He really, he, you know, he just wasn't able to do it. There's a few ideas of his that, that stayed in the film. The idea of Sally actually jumping out, breaking apart, putting herself back together. But we had to start with a, f a handful of songs and, and uh, no actual script, which didn't come till later when uh, Caroline Thompson um, was brought in to carefully sort of stitch together all the songs as, as they came into being. I was at that time living with uh, Caroline Thompson, who um, was my girlfriend and who had written Edward Scissorhands. I'd met on Edward and Tim knew Caroline well. Caroline was sitting there listening to all the songs every day anyhow, and she knew it all. And um, finally, Tim was like, well, okay, then hire Caroline to write the script. So she did it, and she was like jumped in really quick because she was chomping at the bit, I think, at that point, having uh, been there that whole month dur during the creation of the songs. From our end, like, well, what do you do? How do you plan to make a movie when you don't actually have a script? We, um, we knew we had to make characters. Characters, it's like casting and take a very long time. So um, we had to figure out what type of facial animation was Jack going to have? And I was, I was pushing for the replacement kind because it may look a little poppy um, as compared to, say, you know, a, a, a puppet with a hinged jaw that you could manipulate more carefully. But I just thought the range of expressions we needed from Jack um, needed to be big. He needed to really be able to sing and change his, his expressions. So I went for the strongest possible expressions, and maybe not as many in-betweens. So we had, to, we had to figure out how do we bring our lead characters to life, our supporting characters, where does the money go, how do we plan how many of the puppets we needed to build for a movie that we didn't really know the actual length. Um, so we had to design armatures. You know, Tim's design for Jack, um, you know, equaled impossible armature. And our, our lead guy, Tom Santamon, just, he said it can't be done, we can't even get close, but he did, he, he got there. This is one of the few times where I asked Danny to rework the song, and it was because I wanted to be able to go to Christmastown, go back and forth and, and have the music uh, change as well so that you get the, the juxtaposition of, of these crazy Halloweeners and their monstrous toys with, with traditional Christmas. It wasn't originally going to do that but it felt like we don't have much Christmas town in this movie. People like it, we like it. Let's just try to sneak a little more in. Yeah, Making Christmas began as like the epic song because there's so much stuff that had to come out in the context of that song. And um, 
it did get uh, cut down a bit, but for the first draft of Making Christmas was pretty long because there was an endless amount of stuff that you can come up with for all the things that they could do and, and their enthusiasm and, uh, um, you know, could have been, that song could have been half an hour long. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it fills me with such joy to see this delusional guy <laughs> convincing himself of this wonderful thing he's he's doing and how and he just knows how successful it's going to be he's convinced he can do a better christmas than anyone else and the melting man we actually used like a, a hot air blower and would melt him a little bit between frames to make him droop and then hand animate it the crazy things we do to make a film like this so here we have the juxtaposition going to christmas town and seeing these uh, little elves probably uh, who live on nothing but sugar, uh, working feverishly. But we, we, um, we want to actually match the lighting. As you saw, there was some strong shadows there, so we didn't want it to be like so different that it was jarring. The Evil Scientist was something I came up with for voice casting, William Hickey. I guess it had been Pritzi's honor had been made, and I couldn't forget his voice. Just something really interesting in uh, that rasp. He uh, flew out from New York. It was impossible to tell how old William Hickey was. I think he'd always looked the same age since he was about five. He had a, a big bottle, a plastic bottle of New York water. He said, it's the only water I drink. So he had to have his New York water with him wherever he went. Um, I like evil scientists. I mean, he's... Uh, I understand he created Sally. Why doesn't she love him as a as a father or whatever the relationship's supposed to be? But she doesn't want to be a prisoner. But I I um I think it's great him and, and his and his Igor sidekick. Um, when he's got a job to do, he does it. When it's uh, making reindeer that fly, he knows how to build the best skeleton reindeer. It's cool. Well, the design of the Santa Claus was, you know, a bit strange because we wanted to make him the kind of classic, you know, round Santa. But I have always have a tendency to draw tiny feet. I don't know. I'm not quite sure where that psychologically comes from. But it created the ultimate effect of sort of the archetypal image, but just something off about him, you know, uh, both in character and look. The Sally character, even though she's the character that's falling apart all the time. She's actually the most grounded character in the whole piece. Where Jack is delusional, I mean, she's got a real heart and soul to her. She's the real anchor. She's the, the real kind of emotional anchor of the film. And again, the design dictates what she is. She's kind of a rag doll. So we wanted to give her an elegance, but also there's a certain kind of... Not, I wouldn't say jerky nature to her, but because she had such thin ankles and, you know, kind of slightly top-heavy character, it wasn't hard for the animators to get that, you know. That's why the design is so important, is, is that it really helps inform each of the characters how they moved. Sally's a, you know, a, a very original character Tim dreamed up. We all wondered if it was his ideal woman, uh, dead. <laughs> Beautiful, voluptuous, lots of stitches. With, with Sally, there's a, a sweetness to her that's um, suggested in Tim's original drawings we wanted to retain. We, we, we worked hard not to make her grotesque. 
when her limb, her arms actually pulled off uh, when she's struggling to get away from the evil scientist near the beginning of the film, I really wrestled as to well, what's inside her, you know, where Joe Ranft was into sort of gory things. I said, let's have just leaves. She's stuffed with leaves, like fall colored leaves. Catherine, who was cast for Sally, um, I was always a big fan of hers, so of course, you know, I was pleased. When I heard that, I didn't know if she could sing or not, but I really wasn't worried because I knew that Sally's song was uh, a pretty simple song. And uh, and I think I just kind of felt that Catherine was uh, such a good vocal mimic and character person that I, th I thought she could just handle anything anyhow. And she did. She did a great job. Sandy Claus, we ended up using a, a local actor. Remember, we made Nightmare Before Christmas in the Bay Area, San Francisco, you know, 400 miles from L.A. We auditioned quite a few people to be Sandy Claus, and we actually had Vincent Price originally. But Vincent, he'd lost his wife recently, and there was this deep sadness in his voice. He was very frail, and um, we really wanted it to work, and Tim wanted it to work, and it was an amazing experience to get to to, to meet him and, and, and record him. But in the bigger scheme of things, it just wasn't gonna work for the film. We ended up auditioning a local actor, Edward Ivory, from the San Francisco Bay Area. And I knew right away, he, he, he had it. It was, it was just more the traditional Santa voice, but he had this authority to him. Um, you know, someone who can make things right, of course he can, because he's Santa Claus. What have we here? We auditioned a few people for Oogie Boogie, and Ken Page just seemed to really embody the spirit really well. Ken was great. He needed, like, he needed Ken Page's voice. He needed the weight. Pay attention now, cause I'm the boogeyman. <laughs> it was funny because he's just sassy. He's just saying, oh my God, I can't believe what a joke you are. <laughs> he's just such a, he's so rude. The black light thing, I think that was just a visual uh, inspiration. Um, but when I was conceiving the song, I wasn't imagining all the things that he could do like that. I think, uh, I don't know whether that idea was Henry or Tim's or both of them together, but it was a great idea. But um, I just really was imagining this kind of, almost like a character just stepping right out of a 1927 cartoon. And, um, what was something, how might he sing? And, uh, and that, that was how I thought of Oogie Boogie. What are you going to do? I'm going to do the best I can. And this is just the kind of response you might have heard in a cartoon in like 1927. Rick Heinrichs, he's the only person I think in the world who could have sculpted the final Oogie Boogie. Tom Santamon and his gang, including Merrick Cheney, had to build this super tough armature and um, we needed the strongest animators to move this. This, this was like wrestling with an alligator. He's like really hard to push around. There's a lot of rubber. If you watched an animator working on Oogie and seeing them sweat and physically wrestle with that, you would never imagine they'd be able to get something quite as elegant, wonderful as, as he ended up being. If I wanted to single out one moment, one specific thing that, that always gets me, um, it might be surprising, but there's this weird little corpse kid that um, in, in Christmas Town, uh, there's, you know, the, this little group of, 
of uh, youngsters and a little a little demon on wings and this boy who's got his eyes sh uh, sewed shut. Um, this is something Joe Raft, who was our head story artist and uh, one of my best friends and Tim's best friends and an incredible contributor, um, he came up with this character. He de he he designed him. You know, Tim Tim did all the leads, but there was a lot of other characters. He didn't have time. This was something Joe did, and there's this amazing sweetness to this weird little kid that could could end up just being creepy. But there's a point in the film you've been introduced to him. He's already sort of sweet and, and likable, uh, like Joe Raft himself. And then there's a moment when it looks like um, you know Jack Skellings has been shot down, things are going terribly wrong, and this kid goes, there goes Christmas. There goes Christmas. And uh, it's, 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 the it's just this moment where this crazy idea, these aren't monsters. They may look like monsters. Uh, their job may be to frighten people, but uh, they have souls, and, they, and uh, that's, that's just it for me. Zero the Ghost Dog, one of Tim's original characters at the earliest stages of, of Nightmare. I think he thought of him as almost like a magician's handkerchief that would float around in the air. We use this um, lead, uh, me, you know, very malleable metal. Uh, it's not good to lick your fingers after you animate zero. But we, 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 we put tape over the lead. We made his body of lead, which could be animated very fluidly to make it look like flowing cloth. And then his head was a little puppet head, like, you know, the same as Jack or, or Sally. Sometimes I th think this is the best song in the in the film. It's Sally getting her chance to emote, and uh, you get to learn how how deep her soul is. That she's not just a rag doll, um, where life is, you know, so new to her that she's she's uh, an innocent. She has a deep sadness, and uh, uh, you know, a longing to be understood. There's something wonderfully sad and lilting in this that's, um, I don't know, just, it just works well. The, ma the marriage um, between music and, and uh, voice and picture. So Catherine did such a good job because Cal Sally's character shouldn't and couldn't be a, a real strong belting singer. She has to have a voice for her character that just barely gets the sound out, and um, I thought Catherine nailed it perfectly. Well, this sky stuff is hard work. Those are real cotton clouds <laughs> we had to build. We pushed the cameras through them. Uh, this is a pretty big model. When you're flying uh, stop motion, um, again, all those clouds are just handmade from cotton. The landscapes, the worlds were very important because that's part of the story. And 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 uh, something that toyed when we did Vincent was this sort of combination of you know dimensional animation, but slightly more graphic backgrounds, and uh, so that there was a kind of a blur in terms of how dimensional it is. And and so the sets became and the world became very dimensional up foreground, but as it went back, you know, we tried to sort of graphic it up a bit so that that that, that you know, it was definitely more dimensional than something like Vincent, but there was some kind of that kind of quality where there's you know it's three dimension, but there's a graphic quality to it. That little boy there is um is uh, right off a of Tim 
Burton sketch. And uh, certainly is one of the most famous moments of the film. Where uh, <laughs> it, su it summarizes the whole deal of uh, Jack's wonderful Christmas right from the start going horribly wrong. Strange, that's the second toy complaint we've had. You know, growing up watching monster movies, things like Frankenstein or Creature from the Black Lagoon or King Kong, any monster movie, you realize those are the characters with the heart and soul. So Jack, to me, was a representation of a character that looks scary, but really wasn't. I always liked that the, mon the wreath monster, if he ate you, you would just come out the other side. <laughs> There's nothing there. This was always... Um, inspired by Mickey Mouse. But of course, because it was a Disney film, they were, if not perfectly okay with that, um, they were okay that, that, you know, had little Mickey Mouse there. Jack probably thinks they're screaming with delight. Stop motion animators are rare creatures. Um, and stop motion has never been sort of the sexy, really successful form of animation that used to be. 2D cell animation, like all the classic Disney films from the very beginning, through the great musicals in the 80s, like Lion King, um, that that was the dominant form of animation. And then CG, starting with Toy Story, was a dominant form. So uh, anyone who wanted to like be successful in animation and make a great living was training to do those forms. But stop motion has always been sort of bubbling along on the sides for um, as effects, as Ray Har Harryhausen did. Before there was CG, he created some of the world's greatest monsters in stop motion. There was um, TV series like Gumby, uh, very crude and simple, but still um, capturing your imagination. Who is attracted? It's, it's um, yeah, great patience, um, uh, and sometimes, you know, some technical knowledge because usually stop motion animators when they're kids are learning they're making their own puppets you can't just order them or go to the store and buy them and uh, uh, so there's a little technology um, the best ones study acting and actors and dance they study animals just like the great animators um, of the other other forms they look to life and then you know, in the best of all worlds, they distill that. And A Nightmare, um, we were able to collect, um, you know, some of the world's greatest stop-motion animators, many of which I was already working with from this small team I'd, I'd built. There'd been um, um, a, new, a new Gumby series in the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, and there were some people had, who had um, developed on that. There was people from... Uh, ILM, George Lucas's effects house. And then um, we brought people from, from England. Uh, you know, the word went out and there weren't, there wasn't any other stop motion feature for competition. So um, even though there's very few great stop motion animators in the world at any given time, we were able to get, you know, the handful of best ones. I think the magical thing about this process is when you see an animator on a set moving a puppet, and you know you're kind of like watching paint dry. You know you you know you're not. You, but but the ultimate effect of it is a real hands-on approach. And I think you know people 
that's the beauty of it. You, you, you feel their energy coming through and it's like bringing something, an inanimate object to life. And so, yeah, I think that's why, you know, you try to cast, you know, you find out which animators like a certain character and what they gravitate towards because, you know, some people were really good at doing Jack. Some people were good at doing Sally. Uh, some people were good at more action. Some people were good at more, you know, uh, you know, the emotional scenes. And so, and and you know it's like when you cast an actor you 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 want them to bring what they bring to it and it's the same with an animator and it that's the exciting sort of subconscious thing about this whole process is that you really do feel an animator coming through it and uh that's re just really exciting to see it when it works i was there for shooting but you have to understand shooting means in stop motion uh that means you're watching bunch of men and women in different little mini sets calculating with uh, tape measures <laughs> exactly how far they are looking very carefully and clicking off one shot and then calculating the movements for the next one shot. It is not an action-packed uh, day, you know, spending days up, uh, up north with Henry on the set watching the shooting. It's like watching an intensely focused photo shoot. So here, Jack has one song's length of time to work himself from the depths of despair to the heights of enthusiasm, because Jack is the ultimate manic in that way. Poor Jack was the complimentary song to Jack's obsession. Um, Jack was going to have to go from feeling that the world was over and life was over to feeling that he himself was now once again the hero and the only one who can save the day. And he had to do that within the song. So it was very tricky because Jack has to do what he's best at doing, which is convincing himself of what exactly his motivation is. He's a tremendous self-motivator, Jack is. And he has to do it in the course of this uh, one piece of music. So he's saying, Angel, go away from a million years. That's what I deserve. But, and the reason why we love Jack, here he is describing poor old Jack. Here his 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 tombstone. But all of a sudden, he's going to change his own mind by presenting a compelling argument to himself. Now, there he goes. <laughs> it's working. His pep talk. Are some stories I can tell. I did. So, his zero is his audience, of course. And for the first time, he remembers what he was and what he is. That's right. I am the Pumpkin King. Hmm. <laughs> and Jack's off to save the day. It's hard to say where this fits in the Disney, uh, because they don't make movies like nightmare um you know i mean they once they got successful with things like little mermaid and aladdin they, they really got into that that's what really entered re-energized the disney and then obviously the pixar movies you know john lasseter and you know him and you know joe ramp moved over to pixar and and, and you know that became obviously the 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 their future so i i, I do think that nightmare is a bit of a you know <laughs> a one-off for sure but i do feel like it's 
it, it's not a one-off in the sense that they they did kind of it i do feel it helped kind of re-energize animation in a different way more than any project i've ever worked on in 22 23 years now um, this was the one i most hoped would find an audience and it really didn't look like it would and then it did and so it's still the thing that was the greatest in my entire career surprise and delight was this film against all odds and against expectations finding an audience and finding an audience that took years to find which is very rare as you know a movie not finding its audience its first month is a death knell for a movie. And so for a movie to find its audience slowly over the next seven years, I mean, that's extraordinary. And more than any movie I've ever worked on, if there's one that I could have wished, if that could happen to one film, let it be this film, this would have been the one. So um, it was really gratifying over five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years to like, wow, it's still, not only is it still out there, but the audience seems to be growing. and. Um, I was so amazed, you know, what I would sometimes go to an airport or an opening or something like that, and there'd be some people with a bunch of pictures for me to sign. And here I've worked on Batman, I've worked on all these really big films, but what were the pictures? Always Jack Skellington <laughs> and Lock, Shock and Barrel and pictures of, you know, poster, uh, cover, uh, whatever you call it, the one sheet for Nightmare Before Christmas. Oogie Boogie's Bugs, there's a few shots we, we, um, this it was a Tim's uh, uh, original idea that he that he be filled with bugs, but Tim's original drawings had him standing, um, you know, in life size as like a like a pillow sized little creature, and and it, it just wasn't going to work. We had to make a a huge oogie, and a huge oogie meant a lot more bugs inside. So we implied there was a lot when he's um, singing the oogie boogie song to Santa, and there's moments where out of his mouth. There'll be a few bugs and seams will open. Um, so you get the sense that he's filled with those, but it's only when um, Jack Skellington and he battle and Jack man manages to pull the thread that, that, that stitches him together that his cloth sack body falls away and you see he's nothing but just sort of a mound of, of bugs. Um, everybody in the studio who had any extra time made oogie bugs. So our associate uh, producer, coordinators, any downtime, they would make you know use use wire, um, little bits of uh, special clay, and, and paint it so that these could be animated, and they'd look great. So we had to end up with a few hundred oogie bugs. Help! I could. With my work, there's always been this concern that it's too scary for children or too dark or this or that, and yeah, there was that concern, but has has been proven <laughs> it's like kids are the best judge you know it's like sometimes I think adults have this tendency to go oh that's gonna be too scary or weird but I grew up myself as a child watching monster movies and watching things like that and and, and you know I, I think that I think a lot of times adults are quite surprised that their kids kind of get into it and and I never felt personally that it was anything you know overly scary or overly you know over the top uh, you know again I find kids to be the best judges of what they can handle or what they can't handle there were certain issues uh, in the film that had to be resolved and and uh, logic of things 
um, certain things, they never had to make perfect sense, but they had to make their own sense. And uh, if Jack Skellington's a skeleton, isn't he already dead? And if he's shot out of the sky, um, we had to come up with things like, well, he's gone. Um, and we've lost him. And when he comes back to see Oogie Boogie, you know, and Oogie Boogie says, what, Jack? You must be double dead. Um, so some funny little little things of logic. You just have to make it so people don't don't question. Well, why does it matter? He's dead to begin with. And, and uh, um, there's lots of little things like that in the film where you just have to get this balance. Now, there's the evil scientist with his replacement for Sally. And, um, you know, ending of a movie. What's going to summarize what matters? Um, this is a sequence. Tim Hiddle did most of the animation. It's stripped down to the bare minimum. Just our two leads. Jack finally having a moment of sense and realizing his feelings for Sally. I think, you know, Danny and Catherine's voices really complement each other beautifully here. It was really nice to take sort of the archetype image, the, the most important image, that, that curly cute hill, the spiral hill and moon, and cover it with snow from uh, Santa bringing Christmas there. In watching Nightmare, uh, all these years later, it's 15 years since the film was released as of this date when I'm recording, um, I'd say the first eight years <laughs> of seeing the film, I couldn't not see the flaws in it. I always felt there'd been maybe too, too many songs, some of the animation wasn't as good, the story point wasn't as clear. And then at a certain point, the flaws and problems just started to fade away. And I just, um, I don't know, it's like uh, the Grinch's heart. It just, <laughs> uh, my heart changed and uh, I ended up really embracing the whole film and actually embracing the flaws as part of its beauty, the human part that I think connects it to its audience. I now would never want any of the songs removed. Uh, I thought, you know, there'd been a couple too many, but no, that's the exact right amount. So at this point, I really embraced the entire movie. Nightmare Before Christmas was one of those rare experiences that just probably comes along, you know, once in God knows how many years, where everything just clicks together in just the right way. Um, I really can't give Tim enough credit for uh, his contribution to all the songs, because they weren't so easy just because the songs were so easy. They were easy because um, Tim and I were very much in sync, and this was one of those rare things where the creation of it just wasn't struggle. It was just clear and simple and uh, and fun. And uh, um, I uh, I really am appreciative for Tim for inventing this and allowing me the opportunity to uh, do this work. Because I really, even now looking back at it after all these years, I remember uh, what a great time it was. When Jack says something to the effect, you know, just because I can't see it doesn't mean I can't believe it. I mean, that's kind of what the artistic process is all about. And there's a certain emotional thing about that, that, you know, you can relate to any project, any artistic endeavor, any movie that you might make, is you have to have a certain 
belief in things, things that you can't see exactly, things that you maybe don't fully understand. I mean, that's, that's you, you know, when you look at a great painting or anything, you know, you, you may not understand everything about it or whatever, but it gives you, there's an emotional feeling to it. That statement that he makes, I think, is, is very important to, you know, almost everything you do. Well, what Nightmare did for me was, I mean, it's always going to be a special thing for me because it's one of the first things I ever designed. And so that, you know, always those kind of things have, will stay with you forever. So that's why for me, it's always going to be, you know, a favorite because uh, it's an emotional favorite. And, you know, it was an early piece. And uh, like I said, those things always have an impact on you. And, and just to see it come to life, just to see what the animators, what everybody did to bring it to life is very special and energizing to me. It was a real pleasure to talk about Nightmare and look at it again uh, with Tim and Danny. Um, we're hoping you really enjoyed hearing our comments, might have learned something new, and we're pleased that you still enjoy the movie these many years after it was first brought to life. On behalf of the incredibly talented crew who worked on this film, uh, the Disney Studios, who funded the film and made the film and released it, um, I wish to uh, give my thanks. I hope there's many more years of enjoyment of The Nightmare Before Christmas. Thanks for keeping The Nightmare alive. <laughs>